Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When a sweet-natured choir girl gets a taste of freedom, her family is distraught. We had no idea where she was. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed. But they can't imagine how far she'll run. They rode together and they partied together. Into the dark side. She had a single earring in her ear. It was a white dove. That was a telltale sign that she was involved in a motorcycle game. By the time she wants out. It wouldn't surprise me that she would want to leave the group. It's too late. Crabs and crustacean, crawfish, and other animals had been feeding on her remains. And for more than 30 years, answers would stay buried in the swamp. Here in Bayou Country, just outside the tiny town of Dulac, Louisiana, a September afternoon can be downright unbearable. The sweltering heat and humidity leave the boggy marsh creepily still. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill someone. Four days later, three fishermen are out in the bayou looking to get a few nibbles. If you think of wetlands in Louisiana, that is Bayou Sally Road. It is swampy, uh, there's a lot of tall grass, there's a lot of standing water. It's a good spot to land some speckled trout, maybe some amberjack. But today's catch is a lot more gruesome. Whoa! Whoa. Man, I think that's a body. Body! They discovered the deceased body of an unidentified white female. She had apparently been partially submerged in the water for a couple of days. Crabs and crustacean, crawfish and other animals had been feeding on her remains. They immediately ran to a local gas station, called the authorities. When the original reporting detective arrived, he could see that her hands had been tied. They're obviously tied together. 
There was a white scarf that was tied around her neck. There was a nylon cord that was also tied around her neck. On the other end of that nylon cord was the cinder block. There's no telling who the young woman is, but then the detective spots a clue. What's this? She had a single earring in her ear. It was a white dove. Dove earring. Local police are familiar with the symbol. They've seen such jewelry before. Biker gang. That was a telltale sign that she was involved in a motorcycle gang. The body is taken to the medical examiner's office for a formal autopsy. As with any young woman found naked, the coroner checks for signs of sexual assault, but he finds none. As for cause of death, well, there are no bullet holes or knife wounds on the body, but the cord around her neck is a dead giveaway. We believe that what took place was that she was strangled, and then thereafter she was dumped in the water. Police start asking around at biker joints in the area to see if anyone has reported a young woman missing. Trouble is, there's a heap of rival motorcycle crews in these parts who rub each other the wrong way. Any investigator looking to wade into those waters better be prepared for less than full cooperation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? 
Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In 1980, forensics weren't as sophisticated as they are now. There's no DNA matching, no computerized fingerprint database, but the young lady's corpse is in pretty bad shape. So to try and identify her, investigators rely on a gruesome procedure. The hands were cut off of the body and forwarded to Washington, D.C. for fingerprint analysis. The technique may be crude, but it's effective. The more advanced technology at the FBI lab will enable them to run the victim's prints through their national database. Sure enough, Almost immediately, they get a match. The police determined that the, the, the individual that was found was Edith, Edith West. Turns out 23-year-old Edith McLeroy West had been fingerprinted just a few months back on a public intoxication charge, but not anywhere near Dulac, Louisiana. Best they can tell, Edith lives some 500 miles away in Coleman, Alabama. How on earth did this young woman end up strangled to death in a Louisiana bayou? Coleman, population 13,000 on a sunny day, lies in the heart of the Bible Belt, some 50 miles north of Birmingham. It's a rural, conservative town filled with modest, church-going people. Edith apparently came from one such God-fearing family. Hello. But when her father, J.W. McElroy, gets the grim news from a Louisiana detective. His faith is shaken to the core. At the time, Edith's younger brother, Greg, was just 12 years old. I never seen my dad cry till that day. I got off the phone, asked him all drawn, and he just went on in his bedroom. Words really can't describe how a person feels until they go through it themselves. Over the next few days, investigators learn as much as they can about Edith by talking with her grieving family. Edith grew up the oldest of eight children with her father, J.W. J.W.'s wife left years ago, but when Edith was 10, Carol came along and enthusiastically stepped into the role of mother to the kids. She loved Edith a lot. She cared for her. Seemed like they had a close-knit family. Church was their home away from home. The McElroys saw God as the glue that kept their family strong. It was a Baptist church. There was one next door, and yeah, we was pretty much there every Sunday. Edith had a fine voice, and by her early teens, she was singing in the choir. Her parents couldn't have been prouder. When she would sing, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. <sighs> there was some voice of it, and she could sing real good. We'd be around doing things together, and we'd sing Amazing Grace, and uh, Jesus Loves Me, and we just sung out the old country style. Of course, it wasn't all fun. The McElroys enforced a strong work ethic. It was pretty strict. Was, of course, you know, kids were gonna push the limits as much as we can. According to her parents, when Edith turned 16, something changed. She started rebelling, 
and before long, they caught their once responsible daughter doing the unthinkable. Sneaking out of the house long after she was supposed to be in bed. We told it's too dangerous for her to be out. Sleeping out at night, she could get killed. Dad, it does. This has got to stop. I'm so sick of you telling me what to do. Carol and JW chewed out their wayward daughter each time they caught her, but it did no good. She refused to say where she was going and continued skipping out, disappearing into the night for hours on end. When she got up into that age, you know, she thought she was grown and she could do anything she wanted to do. Finally, according to her parents, her constant disobedience got to be too much. She said she didn't want to stay at home. She'd just leave again. And so there was a home there in Cullman that was owned by a preacher and his wife. They said, yeah, they would, they would stay here, you know. The preacher did his best to keep Edith on a short leash and occupied with a full slate of church and domestic duties. But it did no good. Edith kept sneaking out and staying out until dawn and wouldn't tell anyone where she'd been. We brought you into this so that these other girls could influence you in a positive way. And what has happened is you are influencing them in a negative way. They just finally decided they couldn't keep her. You know, it was uh, causing the other children to have a bad influence on them. Edith left the group home. We will pray for you. But she didn't return to her parents. Instead, she simply disappeared, this time for weeks. But then one day, just before her 17th birthday, Edith appeared back on her parents' doorstep. She looked like herself, but she changed more than Carol realized. Come bouncing in the door, jolly, happy as she always was, you know. And uh, she hugged my neck and uh, I said, honey, I said, where'd you get them bows? She said, I wore them so you could take them up for me. And uh, I said, honey, I don't think them can be took up enough. And Edith wasn't alone. Out on the curb was a man straddling a motorcycle. Just looked, I don't know, he had long hair and beard and grizzly at him looking thing. He wore a motorcycle jacket and stuff. I'm not sure how old he was, but he looked old. I said, who is that? I got my boyfriend. His name was Archie West, but his friends called him Possum. He was a 21-year-old biker with no occupation to speak of. I said, let me see what he looks like. And uh, she said, oh, so we ain't please. got much time. Darling, please, you just got here. They went there for a few minutes till, you know, they left. Turns out Edith had spent the last several months sneaking out to biker bars. And now she had decided that this was the life for her. She came from a really good family, a really good home. And to me, it seemed like Archie would have been a way to rebel. Now detectives are looking to track down Archie to see what he might know about the murder. But according to Edith's parents, 
that's going to be tricky. Edith's father and stepmother tell detectives that shortly after moving out of the family home two years earlier, 18-year-old Edith and her boyfriend Archie moved in together, not far away. You know I love you guys. The attractive young brunette soon found she had a new family that included the guys in Archie's biker pack. Archie was the leader of this loose motorcycle group or gang. They were all originally from Coleman or from around that area. Bikers rarely stay in one place, and Archie and Edith were no exception. They often left their tiny home behind and hit the open road. They basically just traveled around, stopping at towns, hanging out there for a couple of days, partying, and move on to the next town and just riding their motorcycles. According to her parents, Edith spent the next six years with Archie and his posse, cruising the highways and raising hell. Seems that Edith was drawn to this lifestyle, whether it be for excitement or rebellion. Her parents had no choice but to accept it. Edith had left her strict Christian upbringing in the dust. We had no idea where she was. We didn't know if she was in Texas, California. You know, we just worried to death about her. I just went to the bedroom, got down on my knees, and I just prayed and prayed and prayed. Finally, her parents tell detectives Edith reappeared on their doorstep earlier that year. And when she did, she dropped a bombshell. She said she'd got married, and I said, oh, really? We got married, Mom. You got married? You didn't tell us you got married. I said, well, why didn't you let us know? And she said, I just didn't, you know. I have to go, Mom. I have to go. As usual, it wasn't a long visit. And Edith told Carol they'd be hitting the road again soon. She said, and we fix and go to Louisiana. I said, Edith, what in the world are you going to do in Louisiana? As her parents would learn later, this latest road trip had a purpose. Archie and his crew were fixing to make some big money over in Houma, Louisiana, working in the oil business. There's a lot of offshore work that uh, comes from Houma. Guys that uh, want to come down and, and give a good hard day's work uh, can make a good amount of money working on the oil rigs. Carol and JW pleaded with her not to go. They worried that once Edith got on that bike, they'd never see her again. I said, you ain't got no business going on the bikers down there. You don't know nobody, honey. I mean, you can get hard to kill down there. We was worried to death, hard to lose. But they going to do what they want to, and all you can do is say, I'll pray for you, baby. Before leaving, Edith gave her stepmother a memento. She bought a pair of earrings, and uh, she said, I want you to have these. And, uh, I said, are you sure? She said, yes. I said, well, they're real pretty. And she hugged me again. <laughs> when detectives hear of Archie's plan to bring his crew to Homa, it provides a critical piece to the puzzle. It explains how Edith's body could have ended up 500 miles away in the muddy bayous of Louisiana. But it still doesn't explain why. 
police put the word out, looking for anyone with information about a pack of bikers riding out of Alabama, led by a guy named Archie West. And there's nothing else you can tell me? Weeks pass before they hear whispers about an Alabama crew that used to hang out at a popular biker spot in Homa. They all hung out at a bike shop with Mike Brown. Hey, give me those channels, Mike Brown worked at our local Harley-Davidson shop, and they got to know him because he was the mechanic. Sources tell police that Archie and his crew spent a lot of time hanging out at Mike's shop on their hogs, drinking and tinkering with their rigs. People who stopped by the shop remembered Edith. Fact is, she turned a lot of heads, something some of the other older girls grumbled about. But as Archie squeezed, she was the undisputed queen of the crew, and she knew it. They would ride around town looking for jobs. They were trying to find a place where they could make some good money. But despite the rumors they'd heard, the oil refineries in Homa weren't handing out jobs to just anyone who showed up. Two of the guys in Archie's crew, Randy and James, found work at a local cement plant. Not exactly the riches they'd planned on, but enough to keep them in beer and cigarettes. Working in a cement factory, you wouldn't be making a lot of money. You would be living in the poverty level. But Archie, and now 23-year-old Edith, apparently weren't interested in clocking in at a factory job. Instead, in the spring of 1980, they hit the road again. They rode together, and they worked together, and they partied together. For police, retracing the couple's movements proves to be a tall order, until they learn that Edith had taken on part-time work once in a while. Edith was working uh, as a, a bartender in the various bars around town and uh, maybe as far as New Orleans. As for Archie, well, seems he turned to a life of petty crime, stealing what he could to bring in some cash. It's a hard life, and according to her family, it began to take a toll on Edith. Detectives speculate that she started having second thoughts about the man who swept her off her feet and onto the back of his bike six years ago. She would try and call a few times through the year, but she and then we didn't hear from her. Dad, this one's for Edith. What do we do with it? Of course, that is like something ain't right. I mean, According to her parents, near the end of the summer of 1980, Edith returned to Alabama without Archie. And she was not the angelic-voiced, bubbly girl she once was. She showed up at her stepmother's house and her dad's house. She appeared to be drunk and disoriented, and I think they called uh, the local police force, and it ended up with an, an arrest of Edith for public drunkenness and, I believe, drug possession. Edith had hit bottom. After her parents bailed her out of jail, she admitted that she and Archie had been running from the law. She was tired of running, tired of her life. She wanted out. She got soaked into the little thing, and once she finally realized it, she was trying to get out of it. But with motorcycle gangs, you don't just walk away not without consequences. Detectives now have a decent idea what Edith was up to in the nine months leading up to her murder. But there are still massive gaps. And the biggest is Archie West himself. 
Acting on a tip that Archie might have headed over to New Orleans, detectives call various police stations. Yeah. And after some hard legwork, investigators finally score a hit in October 1980. We found Archie West. Just not where they expected. He's in New Orleans, all right. Archie, how are you? But he's in jail. Do you have any idea why I'm here? Turns out he's been in jail since August on burglary charges, around the time Edith made her last visit home. Your wife, Edith? She's dead. She's dead? She's dead. How? It seems their prime person of interest has an ironclad alibi. They learned he was actually in custody in New Orleans at the time of the murder. Archie was serving time for a botched burglary and now faced other alleged charges in his home state of Alabama. Still, police are anxious to sit down with him to see what he might know. Archie had indicated that he had not heard from his wife from some time, so it didn't sound like their relationship was that close during that period of time. You can't keep doing this. Your father and I just can't keep bringing you in and taking you Apparently, in. after Edith's last visit to her parents, she hadn't gone back to her husband. And Archie insists he has no clue about what happened to Edith. When was the last time you talked to Edith? Three months ago? Okay. Police can find no evidence of Archie masterminding a hit. And, um, and when they press him to think of anyone else who might have had it in for Edith, he comes up blank. Finally, he offers up the names of four guys he and Edith rode with. Ricky Brown, Michael Burnett, Randy Buckaloo, and James Hines. From reports, they were all very good friends. They had grew up together and they came down from Coleman, Alabama to Louisiana together and was traveling all over the country riding motorcycles together. Hoping for a tip, Detectives make sure their investigation into Edith's murder, including the names of Archie's fellow bikers, is covered by local papers around Homa. The tactic pays off. The newspaper article led detectives to a trailer in West Homa where they found four individuals lived. Edith, when was the last time you saw her? They all agree it was a Monday, September 22nd, a few weeks after Archie went to jail and just five days before Edith's bloated body was found in the swamp. Were they protecting each other? The story that developed was that uh, she showed up around the trailer on that Monday afternoon, and she was ready to get out of the area, and she wanted her possessions. Some of those belongings, uh, she thinks, are in Archie's truck, being used by one or more of the guys that are living there. Oh, not till I hear from the horse's mouth, no. Mike and Ricky had some issues. They wanted to make sure that Archie was okay with this and give her permission. There's a fierce loyalty among bikers. You didn't just give your buddy's stuff away unless you got his say-so. So according to them, Edith agreed to hold off on claiming her stuff until they heard back from Archie. What's happening, sunshine? Ricky! Tear it up! buddy. The crew claims they spent the rest of the evening as usual, getting drunk and having a good time. Before it got too late, Michael Burnett says he had to leave. He had to be in Alabama the next day to take care of some personal business. Mr. Burnett had left anywhere from 
6 to 10 o'clock Monday night, and he had given an excuse to his work that he had to go back to Alabama because he had a court hearing. Ricky Brown also says he took off later that night, but like Burnett's, his story is near impossible to verify. As for Edith, they claimed she crashed there in the trailer with the two remaining guys. She would have spent the night because she had nowhere else to go. When they wake up in the morning, she's still there. James Hines and Randy Buckaloo had to go to their jobs at the cement factory pretty early. They leave for work 5, 6 o'clock in the morning to go to work at the concrete company. When they come home from work at the end of the day, 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, she's no longer there. To police, the story feels sketchy. But after verifying that Hines and Buckaloo did show up for work, they have no cause to doubt the men's account of what happened that night. They had some suspicions, but they just didn't have enough evidence to pinpoint any individual at that time. Who else could have seen Edith after she left the trailer that day? Was there anyone else from her past who might have held a grudge? Looking for more names, detectives returned to the trailer a few days later, but the men are gone, vanished, back on the road. Shortly after the investigation started, the whole group, Ricky Brown, Michael Burnett, Randy Buckaloo, James Hines, moved from home of Louisiana, and they went all over. They left and just started traveling the country riding their motorcycles, so that looked pretty suspicious. Thing is, bikers are hard to find, especially when they don't feel like being found, and especially back then. With 1980 technology, it'd be hard to track anyone down who was traveling the country as a transient lifestyle. They didn't have cell phones that you can track. They weren't able to track them by credit card usage or anything like that. With no other leads and their four best suspects gone, the investigation starts to lag. And as the weeks slip away, so do detectives' hopes for solving the case. It's just the way it works in the homicide business. The farther away you get from the actual finding of the body, uh, the less likely something's going to develop. Several months after Edith's body was found, the case goes cold and stays cold. For 20 agonizing years, the McElroy family is left with nothing but grief. Then in 2000, Edith's stepmom, Carol, gets an alarming phone call. Is this Carol McElroy? Yes, this is she. I got a call, and this lady said, I hate to bring up old memories, and I thought, well, what are you talking about, and who is this? Coming up, an eerie confession. He tells him, I really need to talk to somebody about this. I can't sleep, I can't eat. It's really weighing on me what we did to Edith. Leads to a shocking new suspect. I got to somebody. But then in 2000, Edith's stepmother, Carol McLeroy, gets an unsettling phone call. Yes, this is she. I think I know who killed Edith. Can you tell me more? The woman says that her sister, Vicki Brown, knows something about Edith's murder. Vicki Brown? The name means nothing to Carol, yes. but she tells the caller to get in touch with the sheriff's office. So I called back to Louisiana after that and told them that I had heard, you know, this woman knew something about it. After so many years, none of the original investigators are still around. But a detective takes the woman's statement. And as the conversation goes on, he realizes 
This is no crank call. Bits and pieces that they're telling are consistent. That there had been a killing in 1980 and that the body had been dumped down one of the bayous. The woman repeats what she told Carol, that her sister Vicki Brown has critical information about the murder and it's time the truth is told. She says Vicki is also a biker chick and she lived in the Homa area when Edith did. What's more, Vicki used to be married to Ricky Brown, one of the guys in Archie's crew. Could Edith's murder have been engineered by women who hung with the crew? It's an angle investigators hadn't pursued before. Intrigued by this new possibility, the detective does his best to locate Vicki Brown. But there's a problem. The sisters didn't really know where Vicki was living at the time. She was still living a transient lifestyle. With the limited resources we had, he attempted to track down Vicki Brown. But since she wasn't living in Houma, Louisiana, it made it kind of difficult, so the case just feels cold once again. For a moment, the McElroy family thought there might be a break in the 20-year-old mystery of Edith's murder. But once again, those hopes are dashed. It was rough. After my dad retired from his job, I just told him one day that we would we would find out who it was, and I would do everything in my power to make sure. I'd call it once a while to see if they had heard anything else. You know, that's a lot of years go by, and you sort of want to, you just keep praying. Lord, let them be caught. Another year passes with detectives no closer to tracking down Vicki Brown or any of the four men last seen with Edith. But then once again, they get a phone call out of the blue about the murder of Edith McElroy West. Uh, yes, detective, my client might have some information about a homicide back in 1980. I was hoping we could work something out. The sheriff's office got a phone call uh, from an attorney. Her client, Mike Brown, had some information uh, that he wanted to share. It's another name buried deep in Edith's case file. Mike Brown, no relation to Vicki and Ricky Brown, was the mechanic who ran a motorcycle shop in Homa and who often hung out with Archie and his gang from Alabama. As his lawyer tells police, Mike has recently been busted for dealing drugs. I give you something, you give me something. You know what I'm looking at. Mike Brown was looking at a pretty heavy prison sentence and he felt that by coming up forward with this information on his old homicide, it could dramatically reduced the amount of time he was going to spend in prison. Mike confirms that he knew Edith, Archie, and the whole gang pretty well, and backs it up with details of their time together in Homa. This guy sort of transcended all the groups that were in town because he fixed the bikes. Mike claims 15 years after Edith was found in that bayou, Ricky Brown came to him and confessed. He's traveling to Florida with Ricky Brown when Ricky tells him, I really need to talk to somebody about this. I can't sleep, I can't eat. It's really weighing on me what we did to Edith. Why are you telling me this? Detectives are cautiously optimistic that the story is true. After all, the tip phoned in last year suggested Ricky's wife Vicky also knew about the murder. Were both of them involved in the killing of Edith McElroy West? The only way to find out is to bring them in for questioning.
problem is, Ricky Brown and his ex-wife Vicky are nowhere. And once again, the case goes on the shelf for nine more years. In August 2010, it's now almost 30 years since the murder of Edith McElroy West. Lieutenant Cody Wazan is looking through some of the department's older unsolved cases. I was looking into unsolved homicides to see if there was any of them that new technology could help out with being able to track people down all over the country. That interests me to see if I can give this family closure before it, you know, got older than 30 years. Wazan searches the internet for Archie West and scores a hit. Turns out, it appears that Archie's dead, but there are no details. He then gets a hit on Archie's buddy, Michael Burnett. He's also deceased from a heart attack in 2008, but he can't seem to find any record of a Ricky Brown that matches what he knows about the man. And that could be a good sign. Hopefully, he's still somewhere out there. Finally, Wazan looks for Ricky's ex-wife, Vicki Brown. It's a common enough name, but at last he finds a phone number. Hello? Is this Vicki Brown? Yes, this is Vicki Brown. She was living in Kentucky, and we sat down and talked for probably three hours on the phone. It's a call Vicki says she's been expecting for many years. Yes, she tells the detective. She knows all about what happened to Edith. Yes. Vicki tells me that she was living in Homa in 1980. Yes. She remembers seeing on the newspaper where the sheriff's office had recovered the body of an unidentified female down Dulac in Abaya. She says it wasn't that she or any of her girlfriends were involved. But the same week that news broke of the murder, she met someone who was her future husband. Ricky Brown. She remembers that night going to the bar and she met Ricky Brown. They started a romantic relationship. After Ricky was interviewed about the murder, Ricky admitted to her that he helped commit this murder. It's a secret she's been living with ever since, but she also lived by the biker code and refused to go to the police. But now that they've found her, she's ready to tell detectives everything. It all goes back to that September day in 1980. Edith comes to the trailer on Edward Street to get her belongings out of Archie's car after it was brought here when he was arrested. Watch, come on in. Uh, after she agreed to wait until they hear from Archie, the group started drinking together, as usual. <laughs> Edith started loosening up after a few rounds of shots, even getting flirty. But then, she let slip something that greatly disturbed the others. She hinted to them that she was the one who turned Archie in to the police. To the guys, it's a serious violation of trust. You never rat out a fellow biker. It was kind of like an unwritten understanding that if you snitch, something bad would happen to you. The next morning, according to what Ricky later tells his wife, he and Michael Burnett decide that Edith's actions can't go unpunished. Wake up, bitch. That's when everything kind of came to fruition. Wake up. <laughs> Edith was sleeping on the couch when Mike Burnett and Ricky Brown grabbed her, tied up her hands, and put her in a trunk. <laughs> she was brought down the bayou where they tied a nylon cord around her neck. Ricky thought that they were gonna scare Edith because she had turned Archie in. 
But Michael isn't content to just frighten her. According to Ricky, he insists they've come too far to stop now. She's only going to go straight to the police and rat them out, like she did with Archie. They have to finish it, here and now. Give me the brick! They tie a cinder block to around her neck, threw her in the pond. Edith tried walking out of the water a couple of times, and Michael Burnett would throw her back in the water. Finally, Edith seems to give up and starts praying. Michael won't have any of it. He keeps pushing her back under the water. But, as Ricky later tells his wife, he starts to have second thoughts. After they threw her in the water, he felt bad. He wanted to help her, tried to save her. He goes in the water to try to save her. Michael Burnett grabs him and tells him, no, we came here to do something and we're gonna finish it. And would not allow Ricky to pull uh, Edith out of the water. Mr. Burnett strangled her and then she laid down, back down in the water, dead. They were very loyal to Archie. Uh, in their mind, she had ratted him out. You don't do that. And, I mean, she paid the price for it. Yes. It's a compelling story that Vicki relates to investigators. Yes. And it checks out with parts of the story told to detectives by Mike Brown back in 2001. Can this three-decade-old murder case finally be closed? Since Michael Burnett is dead, it's time to track down Ricky Brown, now 54. With the help of Alabama Bureau of Investigations, I learned that he had minor traffic violations in Alabama, tracked him down in Vine Mount, Alabama, only a short distance from Coleman, Alabama. They arrested him on the traffic violations, and once at the Coleman County Jail, they informed him of the outstanding warrants for second-degree murder. In February 2012, Ricky Brown is charged in the 1980 murder of Edith McElroy West. At his trial, the case hinges on the testimony of Ricky's ex-wife, Vicky, and one of Archie's old crew, James Hines. Edith's father, J.W., has since passed away, but her stepmom, Carol, and brother Greg hope, after all these years, to find some closure. Ricky was sitting right in front of me. A lot of bad thoughts run through my head that day, that week. After a three-hour deliberation, uh, the jury came back and found Mr. Brown guilty of second-degree murder. Well, in Louisiana, uh, when you are convicted of second-degree murder, it's life without a probation or parole. Ricky Brown will die in prison. Thank you, Lord. He was finally going to get what was coming to him. He was going to have to pay for doing her the way they did. Well, we got the verdict. I was extremely happy about it, but sad also that my dad wasn't there to see it. Still hard. She never got to live her life. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.